views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Welcome to this live broadcast of Black Talk Radio News. My name is Scotty Reed, and I'm broadcasting from behind the enemy lines of USA, Inc. It is a Thursday night on this February 21st in the year 2019. If you are on the line tonight, uh, or if you're listening, we're using a different number tonight for security purposes, uh, because I've been getting a lot of hate directed my way on this topic by Twitter bullies, but you know, I, I know how to hit bullies in the mouth, you know, but if we're talking on, on Twitter, you just block them. You know, I'm all down for dialogue and hashing out differences. And, but when you start calling me out my name, when you start displaying your ignorance and what I'm not, that it ceased to be constructive. And therefore I take the advice of the counter racist lecturer, Neely Fuller Jr. And I'll cut off contact from you because if there's no contact, contact, there's no conflict. I have enough stress on me trying to maintain the world's largest independent. And when I say independent, I mean independent black radio network that has a global audience. It's, it's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes. Um, you know, being that we are independent black media and certain programs that's on the network is never going to be supported by corporate America. But with that said, I would never accept the support of corporate America because then you open yourself up to control by corporate America because then you're addicted to them butter biscuits and you, you know, them butter biscuits be tasting so good and you got a plate full of them. And then as soon as you start talking truth and speaking truth to power, then them butter biscuits start getting cut off and you don't like that. So in order to maintain that supply of butter biscuits, you're going to engage in whatever it is. Corporate America, a.k.a. Racism America, wants you to engage in. All right, so... The title of tonight's program is Confronting the Xenophobia and Proxy Racism of the ADOS Hashtag Movement. 
Let me give you a description before I give you a definition because definitions of words are very important. People use words incorrectly. They have nothing to do with the standard definition of those words. And I've long maintained that if we got def different definition for the same words in the same terms, then that's confusion right there. So I try to stick to the standard definition. I do speak English. Um, so I go with the English dictionary. This is this is not because I have a colonized mind or anything like that, although my tongue is colonized by way of me speaking the English language. But, you know, uh, in this part of the world, that is how you communicate with other people where there's a majority of English speakers. And then, of course, there's English speakers worldwide. Again, we do have a global audience. But let me give you a description and some background as we get into this conversation. Tonight on BTR News, we are joined by Brother Ross, and we're going to discuss the anti-African and xenophobic elements of the ADOS hashtag movement for reparations and why it is so offensive to many Afro-descended people as its leaders and some of the followers are trafficking in stereotypes and the demonization of immigrants to the United States. After defending the movement against Russian bot accusations and just about to support it, I have to now distance myself from it and warn the audience of Black Talk Radio about the fallacies of joining a movement rooted in xenophobia and attacking Pan-Africanism and, of course, the attacks on the tradition of Black radicalism. Afro-descended immigrants have a history struggling side by side with black Americans and some of the greatest movements against white supremacy this nation has seen and have not witnessed since. People like Marcus Garvey, Kwame Touré, a.k.a. Stokely Carmichael, and American descendants of victims of slavery like Malcolm X and, I should add, Asada Shakur, who, you know, if y'all was tuned in earlier, y'all heard that track from her talking about revolution is love. All right. And, 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 you know, Malcolm X was assassinated on this date, however many years ago. And, you know, this was shortly after I would call his second conscious awakening that came after his trips to Mecca and the continent of Africa to establish support on the continent for American blacks in the global struggle against white supremacy. I will also talk about the history of African Americans participating in some of the worst human rights crimes in U.S. history, like the extermination of American Indians in the West, the overthrow of Puerto Rican sovereignty, the overthrow of South American nations, and more recently, the murder of the Pan-Africanist leader of Libya, resulting in the rise of open-air human trafficking, a.k.a. slavery, in one of the most prosperous nations in Africa. Gaddafi, again, a Pan-Africanist, murdered uh, by Hillary Clinton with the blessings of Obama, even though Obama saying it's a mistake, it was a mistake now. But Gaddafi attempted to give billions of dollars to help black Americans, but was blocked by the U.S. government without a peep from the Congressional Black Caucus before he was killed by jihadists, aided by the CIA, again, without protest, but praised 
by some black Americans like Reverend Bernice King. For those that don't know the background on that, when they had the anniversary of the uh, Dr. King-led, civil rights-led uh, uh, march on Washington, D.C., uh, Reverend Bernice King, uh, crapping all over the legacy of her father, stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and said, let freedom ring, let freedom ring in Libya as American bombs bombed the infrastructure of Africa's most prosperous pan-African nation, Libya. Now, Ross, give y'all some background on Ross. Ross is an American-born citizen of Trinidadian immigrants who has studied pan-African history at the feet of black scholars in the New York area. And he will be talking with us about what seems to be the latest crab in a bucket expression by nine white people. Now, before I bring on Ross to introduce himself, I want to give some definitions of xenophobia because you may not even know the definition of what you're practicing and also a term that I believe I created um, years ago, um, although since then I've seen other people use it in a different context. So that's a term. Uh, let me give you the definition my definition of proxy racism. Proxy racism, the actions of non-white people in a system practicing white supremacy against non-white people that aids and abets racist and harming non-white people through speech, thought, and actions, usually in pursuit of some tangible benefit from racist white people, a.k.a. butter biscuits. All right, xenophobia, this is the dictionary. Definition of xenophobia, dislike of or prejudice against people from other countries. The resurgence of racism and xenophobia is a sentence. Some of the synonyms of xenophobia is racism, racialism, racial hatred, ethnocentrism, ethnocentricity, and there's other uh, pseudonyms for or synonyms for xenophobia. So, that is the context of tonight's program. During the first half, we will, the first half of this uh, program tonight, we will talk about the xenophobia of this hashtag ADOS movement. Why do I call it a hashtag movement? The reason I call it a hashtag movement, because they don't have any, they don't have any formal organization. It's something that was born on the white corporate platform owned by Google called YouTube. And that's basically what it is. It's a hashtag. They created this hashtag to spread their propaganda on social media. So it's a hashtag movement. Until I see some, um, you know, like I run the Black Talk Media Project, which is a registered nonprofit here in North Carolina, until I see some articles of incorporation of a formal organization, you know, and we talking reparations like Encobra, and I may talk a little bit about Encobra. I have linked up with Encobra in the past um, in negotiating with them to start recognizing that slavery has never been abolished. The 13th Amendment carved out an exception clause that says if we convict you of a crime, we can throw you in slavery. And I, you know, in 2014, I created the new abolitionist movement um, standing on 
the work of those who came before me and who I credit as the modern father of the new abolitionist movement is Mr. Lee Woods, who, who wrote a book titled Prison Slavery in the 1970s. And, and so, you know, in trying to get them to acknowledge, hey, we deserve reparations for what was done to our ancestors, that pre-1865 slavery. But since slavery continued in a new form by way of the 13th Amendment, some people also call it accurately prison slavery, then we deserve reparations for what followed after that. Okay? And so NCOBRA is a reparations organization that was started in 1987 and it's still around. And it's not just it's not just working with um descendants of victims of slavery um but it's work it's an international movement you have reparation movements in different countries you got them in the caribbean you got them in in the uk uh in europe you you got them all over so this is an international organization that is fighting for reparations and they do support the H.R. 40 bill, I believe is what it's called, that is languished in Congress for all of these years. And so we'll be getting into a whole lot of stuff. We'll be getting into codification. We'll be getting into um, political strategy and, you know, as well as, you know, why it is incorrect to engage in proxy racism towards non-white people, whether they be Afro-descendant people, immigrants who have come here to the United States, or if it's Latinos. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And we'll get to, I'll get uh, later to some of the reasons why people are focused more on the symptom of this immigration instead of focusing on the problem which is racist white people who created the conditions in these countries to force these people to leave their homelands. All right, so I said a whole lot. Let me let Ross uh, jump in here and uh, introduce himself and, and give an opening statement as well. Okay, um, let me see. Ross, there you go. Oh, oh, I'm sorry, Ross, I muted you. Let me unmute you. Still getting used to this old system yeah, I yeah. used to use. Okay. Hey, Ross, thank you for joining me tonight. Um, and more importantly, thank you for being a supporter of the work of the Black Talk Media Project all these years. And not just a supporter by word, but a supporter financially, which is a deed. Thank you. I thank you because um, without the hard work that you've put in to create this platform, I, I wouldn't have had access to incredible information that has changed my life over the years. So I appreciate it. And I've, I've always talked about supporting black business. That is something that has been a lifestyle for me and my family for a long time. And the business that you're in, as far as uh, creating a black owned uh, radio platform and media platform, as far as our BTR community uh, is something that is essential. I think for us to be able to have the types of conversations we can have unimpeded by the, uh, Colonist structure of uh, media domination and control. These are the most, some of the most, this platform is one of the most necessary platforms and other platforms like it in creation. And the only way that these platforms will continue to exist to do the great work they're doing and to help the many, many people around the world that it's helping is with support. So I do implore everyone who is listening to the program and who listens to any of the other shows and 
partake of the information that this network provides to please support. Um, you can join BTR community for $24 a year, that's 50 cents a week, um, in order to help us to be, be able to com continue to bring innovative uh, programming that pertains to everything that we as black people on a global scale need to know in order to uh, live uh, better lives and more codified lives in a global system of white supremacy and just understand the different struggles of different groups of our people no matter where they may be. So with that, um, I just uh, will say a little about myself. Yes, I'm um, the sole person in my family born here. My entire family is from Trinidad and Tobago. Um, I am also a co-host of the radio show, Real Life the Radio Show. I'm an essayist, uh, African historian, um, and a writer. And I focus on African history, African uh, spirituality, and the origins of hip-hop culture on the continent of Africa. That's been pretty much my focus for uh, as long as I've been writing as far as that's concerned. And um, other than that, I just love my people, wherever they may be. That's pretty much the uh, gist <laughs> of who I am pretty much as far as that's concerned. If you had any other questions, though, Scotty, you can always um, ask them anytime. Now, you, you mentioned or I mentioned that you know, you you a student of Pan Africanist history, Pan Africanist movement. You have studied at the feet of some well known uh, black scholars. Can you tell us a little yes, bit sir. about that experience? And and some of those people were, um, let's just call them ADOS, uh, American descendants of victims of slavery, because you know, calling them slaves is a dehumanizing term that I was corrected. I used to use that term, but I was corrected by Afia Wangaza, um, who lives in, who is an activist in South Carolina and an elder who runs the Malcolm X Center down there in Greenville, South Carolina, as well as a, a black FM low power uh, radio station. Um, which I, you know, uh, uh, had the pleasure of going down there and, and you know, helping her out uh, with some of the stuff at uh, problems at her station. Mm. So who are who are some of those people that you learn from about Pan African sure. movements? No problem. Um, I started going to what was known then as First World Alliance in New York City, which was uh, created by uh, John G. Jackson. Uh, Dr. John Henry Clark, Dr. Yosef Benyakinen, uh, Chancellor Williams, Dr. Chancellor Williams as well, and a few other uh, African scholars of either American, Caribbean, or African descent that were in the New York area. And um, he got, my father actually got connected to that specific group through Kwame Sere. He was in college at the time when he first got to the country. He was uh, going for like an associate. And while he was there, he actually met Kwame Ture on the college campus, and they actually hung out on about four different occasions. He said that they had quite a few profound discussions. They were both Trinidadian. They didn't know each other in Trinidad. They met each other in New York City. And um, during those conversations and the time they spent, he had put him in connection with what became First World Alliance. And my sister and I had started going from, like, the age of five, maybe six years old, we would just go to lectures around New York City and in uh, different parts of New Jersey, sometimes in New York, Jersey City, but most of the time it was in New York City around um, mostly Manhattan, but also in Brooklyn and some of the other boroughs. And basically we have different scholars come through every Saturday and Sunday, um, sometimes Fridays as well, and they would basically teach us about who we were. So it will be Dr. Ben, Dr. Clark, um, Dr. Marimba Ani, Dr. Ivan Van Sertema, um, Renoko Rashidi, 
um, Chancellor Williams, John Jackson before he passed as well, um, and quite a few others. It was so it's so many to run down, but these are all the majority of these people are now ancestors. Some of them are still around. Um, Tony Browder. Um, there's a bunch of them, and ultimately these were the people who formed and shaped my consciousness at a very young age about who and what I was. And also one of the main things they wanted to instill in me, which they did, and all of us that, that sat at their feet, was an innate love for our people, which was something I got at home first. And then they just reinforced it. And to be around these, these black men and women that were speaking in a way that nobody else in society spoke to what was happening to us, to what our history actually was, and the lies that we were told, and unraveling those things, um, it was just a mesmerizing experience. So you're a child sitting around quite a few adults, and we're sitting at the very front, and we're just watching them and listening to what they have to say and looking at the diagrams, and they're breaking a lot of things down. And as we got older, they just taught us about the, the importance of empirical research um, and having great information, make sure that you have everything you need to elucidate whatever facts you have and that you can provide that information for other people to be able to do their own research. And these were all things that I took and it became the foundation of what uh, my writing career was after I stopped making music. So um, these are some of the, the giants whose feet I sat at and I pay homage to them and I will for the rest of my life. Um, as well as my family. And I, did you have any other questions about that? Um, no, but I do have a question, a more personal question that I would like to ask you. And now, your your parents um, were born in Trinidad and Tobago. They immigrated to the United States. And we had an earlier conversation, and I'd like to share that with, with the public, some of the things that they instilled in you as far as how you should uh, interact with African Americans, black Americans who were born here. Mm -hmm. um, yes, my parents are immigrants. They came, both of them came from um, Trinidad, but we have family from both islands, and it's a twin island nation, so it's called Trinidad and Tobago, but they were actually both born in Trinidad. They relocated here in the early 70s, um, about 71, and they came here because they were seeking a better life. There was a lot of things that took place in the family back in Trinidad that made it a necessity for my mother to leave, and my father decided to leave with her. So that's what they did. They relocated here. I was born shortly after they arrived, um, and as I grew up, it was an interesting childhood because at the time, I was one of only two Trinidadian families on the block, and a lot of times back then, there was a sort of xenophobia because we spoke differently, and also my mother told me about hearing negative things about American Africans when she got here. So this is not something that, when I speak about it and have spoken about it previously, it's not something that I'm not speaking about from a lack of experience as far as directly know, but my parents told me about this. And ultimately, um, we were treated differently for, for most of my childhood. And eventually, as the culture shifted and reggae music became popular um, and, and dance hall grew up alongside hip-hop, then the, the behavior shifted and we became way more accepted at that point. So it became actually easier for me as far as relating to American Africans. And I was immersed in hip-hop culture from 
as young as possible. So that just made it all easier. A point um, of clarification, Ross, if I may interrupt. Sure. You're saying how you were treated by American mm-hmm. blacks as a child, right? Yeah. That's what you're speaking to. You were mistreated. Okay. Yeah. But what did your did your parents instill in you the negative things that had been told to them about no. black Americans? What what how did Not they how did they what did they, you know, you kinda hinted at it um earlier when you were talking about your father and Kwame Toure, uh who eventually right. would wind up with the Black Panther Party and who is a a intellectual giant in in black American struggle. Absolutely. Um, so this is my parents. What my parents told me was this. They said to me, we came here um, and were able to start a new life here and do good for ourselves to try and make way for you and your sister. Now, we didn't come here at the bottom of a slave ship. We were able to take a plane and, you know, come and be in the city environment and live a pretty good life compared to what she was leaving behind. And she said, my dad specifically said, the people who were here before us had to fight to make a way for us to not come here in the bottom of a slave ship and in chains. And it's their struggle that we are, that is providing the benefit for us to come here and be treated as human beings in some capacity coming back through an airplane rather than the bottom of a slave ship. So they made it clear that there's a special type of respect that I have to have because we are in someone else's house. And my dad put it in the sense that these people in America are your cousins. They, we were all on the same ship. We just got dropped off way earlier than they did. And they have now gone through their struggle, which has provided a way for us to come here and set up for a new life. So these are pe- people that you have to respect. And we have to make it a point that you understand what they did to make it possible for you and your sister to be here in this country and your parents, me and your mother to be here in this country and do the things that we do and and attempt to live the life that we're living. And that's what I was provided through sitting at the feet of those giants was an understanding of the struggle of American Africans in order to make it better for themselves and how everyone else benefits every time black people do something in this country. There's not a group in this country. When you make things better for American Africans, it's better for everybody. It's, it's almost like a form of osmosis. And that is just the, the understanding that I grew up with from what my parents instilled in me and also what these elders instilled in me was that kind of respect is extremely important because it's no different than somebody coming into your house and disrespecting you on a personal level. You're not going to tolerate it. You might end up having the cops go to your house depending on the personality type of the person that it's happening to and their lack of tolerance for it. And it's the same sort of thing. I'm coming to another country looking to get opportunities, and there were people here before me that made it possible for me to be able to do that with a semblance of human decency rather than coming in the bottom of a slave ship. So that was something that was totally understood and it was something that I always walked with no matter where I went and it was something that was instilled in me repeatedly throughout my life it wasn't a one time thing it was something that was reinforced and it didn't really have to be reinforced because I understood it and when I understood it there was nothing else left to be said about it It, it, it's something that just becomes a way of life 
that's just the type of person I am. So it's just maintained and grown, and I was able to pass that on to my son. But my son is his mother's a American descendant of victims of slavery herself, so he understands his history as well, and especially the one coming from his mother's side of the family. So, yeah, that that was the message that I was told about uh, my brothers and sisters here, um, and the importance of respecting them and respecting their struggle and paying honor to those ancestors whose blood was shed on this soil. Mm-hmm. And that's just, um, like I said, a way of life for myself and my family. Now, speaking of your, your family, you're married now. You have your own family. You have children. Yes. Um, you're married to a black American descendant of victims of slavery. Is that correct? Absolutely, yes. Okay. All right. 24 just, years now. Going on 25. Wow. <laughs> that long? Yeah, it doesn't seem that long, but yes, it's, it's shocking to me this time it's going like it has, but yeah, <laughs> for sure. Interesting. Have y'all had conversations about like what we're seeing today? And it's always been been there. I don't want to act like it's anything new. There's always been a level of xenophobia uh, in the black community as you experienced as a child. But have did you and your wife have conversations about anything like that? Absolutely. Um, she used to tell me stories about her childhood growing up in um, Trenton, New Jersey. And she said that when she was young, they didn't know. And her parents re- actually reiterated that to me at one point, point in our relationship, that they didn't know about the myriad of islands in the Caribbean. So the only island they actually knew was Jamaica. So for every one of the people from the islands, they would just assume that you were Jamaican, or that's what the average person would call you. It was almost like the vernacular for anyone that was Caribbean. And again, she said the same thing, that as Caribbean culture became more more accepted via um, reggae music coming to this country, and then, of course, the development of dance hall and all of that, then she even reiterated that it became, we became much more accepted and at that point, people start, started to get a better understanding of the myriad of islands that made up the Caribbean and that people come from these different islands. So that was how she was pretty much introduced to it. But she said that um, they used to, like, as a child, not her, but just black people in the neighborhood would say things like, go back to Jamaica, you know, um, go back on the banana boat. These were all um, xenophobic comments that were directed at Caribbean-born children or anyone pretty much with an accent that they assumed was Jamaican. And um, this was something she told me on her own, and we had conversations about my upbringing and my experiences in Brooklyn um, being quite similar to hers. Um, And she also talked about some of her experiences with Caribbean people because she ended up traveling to England, and she stayed with um, some British-born Caribbean folks and spent time with African-born Caribbean folks and talked about the clashes that took place regularly between those two groups where you had black people from Africa that were British and Caribbean African British people who did not get along and they couldn't stand each other. And then she was about 16 when she took that trip um, to England with a group of people. And she said that she had never seen anything like it as far as just the vitriol they would speak of each other. So these are things we talked about before. Um, And she also had good experiences with Caribbean people um, that we discussed as well. And she always had connections with Caribbean people throughout her life. So whether they were friends of hers or family members that married into the family by marrying one of her aunts or something of that nature. So she had different connections with people and she became quite fond of these folks. And then 
when she met my family, then it was just pretty much what it was. And we all kind of became very, very close <laughs> once uh, we got together and my son was born. So, yeah, we had definitely had conversations about these types of things, exactly whether it's xenophobia or the lack of understanding of um, Caribbean culture and the fact that there were many different nationalities within that umbrella of Caribbean and all of those things. Some of the stories are funny. Some of them are just, you know, what they are. And yeah, so yeah, we definitely have. And she has quite a few stories about that too. Now, yeah. You touched on something. I had asked a question earlier today on social media, on my Twitter. Uh, y'all can follow uh-huh. me on Twitter at Black Talk Radio. Um, I had asked a question about, and it, it's, a, it's a question concerning logic. It's a question concerning critical thinking. And the question that I asked, and you've known me for quite some time. We've had many different conversations. You've heard me on my program. I've participated on your program, listen to you. Again, we have our own social media community called BTR uh, Community. And so you see the things that, that I post. And, you know, I have talked about the, even though there has always been some pushback, mainly against white people, and I understand why it was pushed, uh, uh, there would be pushback against suspected racist white people who want to say, well, Africans sold you into slavery too. And they would use that as a deflection when they are challenged. But it is the truth. It's the truth that Africans sold other Africans into slavery. You know, I posted about the kingdom of Dahomey uh, when that that king and that West African nation who had a tradition of enslaving other Africans before they even came out, came into contact with Europeans. And when the British, who was the superpower, I would say probably the sole superpower at the time, and they were abolishing this uh, transatlantic slave trade and they went to the king and they said you can't sell any more uh, victims into slavery you can't do this anymore and he started crying He not literally crying but I should say whining that well what would we do our mothers sing, sing stories to, to their babies about enslaving our children I mean enslaving our enemies so I, you know, cause people have accused me that don't know me, they don't know my long documented history of of doing internet radio, going back to 20, 2007 and establishing uh, independent black media, uh, digital radio platform in 2008. And I've talked about all of these things. I mean, we have covered so many different topics all from all over the world and all these different issues and what have you. So you you can you you know that I have called out uh, uh, Africans for preying upon weaker tribes and then selling them to Europeans. And then I was saying that Absolutely. that if you have this view of Africa that you think that Europeans or Arabs just ran up into Africa, raiding villages and all that. Well, that you you have a very low opinion about Africans as if they were just so weak that these white people just came over there and just start taking people and loading them on the ship. That is not what was happening. 
The kingdom of Dahomey, and that's just one of the kingdoms that was practicing slavery. There were other tribes that would yeah. sell yeah. sell victims to the Portuguese. Some would sell them to the British. British. Some would sell them to the Belgians. The, the you know just all of Europe, Ar- Arabs as well. Okay, and yeah. they were the ones who who were capturing these victims, and then they were the ones who were chaining them up and marching them on them ships after they were paid by their their slaver customers. So when people accuse, say, I don't never criticize this, you do. We're not even talking about, we're not even talking about those issues. We're talking about xenophobia and the hatred that I'm seeing expressed in this ADOS movement, which just two days ago, I posted a video defending when, mainstream media came after y'all saying y'all were bots and how I linked that to the wider uh, uh, um, uh, what, what can I call it the wider disinformation program to that targeted Donald Trump that targeted Roy Moore and blaming the loss of Hillary Clinton on some Russian bots you know and so I said and I even tagged one of the creators Yvette Carnell and pointed her to the company, New Knowledge, which is still on Facebook, but got, I mean, excuse me, still on Twitter, but got banned by Facebook for creating bot accounts that they were then putting out there talking about, oh, the Russians supporting Roy Moore against the Democrat Doug Jones. I said, this is why Angela Rye, this is why MSNBC, they're trying to link y'all to this wider uh, disinformation campaign to discredit people by claiming that y'all a bunch of Russian bots, that y'all under the control of, of Putin. Now, I was just defending them, but then I was reminded of their xenophobia, which I did witness in some of the earlier videos, and, you know, but I don't watch a lot of other videos because I have, you know, I, I listen to a lot of programming on Black Talk Radio Network. So, you know, I got these ADOS hashtag people making accusations towards me, creating this false narrative towards me to cultivate hate towards me as if I'm some kind of fool or lackey and don't know that bad people exist all over the world. So you, I mean, you're a witness to that, okay? Of me calling out these things. I think somebody said something to me today on Twitter saying, well, you see he ain't call even though we wasn't talking about Nigeria. You see he ain't calling out them Nigerian elites for killing their own people for oil money when years ago when that story first broke about the Nigerian military attacking of uh, this village and, and and murdering all those people so that Exxon Mobil could go in there and grab that oil. Now I'm saying and now I'm saying, so now you're saying it's Nigerian elites, but before you're, you're blaming all hundred million or however many Nigerians as, as being hateful and enemies of American, uh, American blacks. So my question is, what, what are your initial thoughts on this ADOS uh, xenophobia that you have witnessed that I think is is response the persons most responsible for that are the leaders and I'm gonna call them out Antonio Moore and Yvette Carnell. 
Yes. Um, both of them have a history of being anti-immigrant, anti-African, anti-black, and I mean making blatant, direct statements. Um, even Claude Anderson has done that before too, and he, from what I understand, one of the people who propagated this whole thing before both of them, and there was another person who did it before him. I don't remember the person's name, but um, that's that's from the research I've been doing and um, the information I've been gathering, and what I'm seeing is because this isn't new. None of this is really new, just like the um, the Aboriginal movement is not new. Uh, Dr. Ben talked about that back in the, the 80s with us and um, discussed the fact that it wasn't new either. And he always said that it's really about trying to disconnect themselves from being African because being African in some people's minds automatically equates to slavery. And it's just because in the modern times, we have been placed as the quote-unquote poster children of what slavery is. So anytime you say slave, people automatically think African. When there were slaves of every race possible, and the original slaves were European. That's where the word slave comes from, the word slav. Um, so ultimately, we are so embarrassed with that history. I don't understand why, because you were victimized. It wasn't like they went willingly and said, yes, I would love to be a slave in another country and be abused and mistreated intergenerationally in perpetuity. They were, they were prisoners of war who were kidnapped and enslaved. And that is pretty much the gist of it. But a lot of people are so um, harmed psychologically by that history that they want to distance themselves from anything to do with being quote-unquote black in some cases, which would also in some in some vernaculars connotate African or anything African. And I just see this now because you had a, a, a myriad of different think, movements that have popped up in the last year to two years, and all of them are just about varying forms of anti-Africanness in some way. Um, and the Aboriginal movement was one last year. Now this year we have the ADOS movement. And what I'm finding is the the people who are anti-black in that movement, because not all of them are, so I want to make that crystal clear. It's not everyone. Yeah, let me, yeah a, I'm glad you said that. Let me let me just interject right now, because some of the people sure. who are now using that ADOS hashtag have been following Black Talk Radio Network and me personally on social media for a long time, and are still mm-hmm. supporters of mine. So I'm not I'm not saying that every person using the ADOS hashtag to advocate for reparations is engaging right. in anti-blackness and anti-Africanism and even attacking pan-Africanism and those of our ancestors who practice pan-Africanism like Malcolm X. So I'm glad you put that disclaimer because I don't want to do what they're doing. And what exactly. they're doing, no indictment on everyone. Yeah, yeah, and what they're doing is what they learn from racist white people, because that's what racist white people do. Exactly, because the entire system is based on exclusion. Human beings are social social creatures, so when you exclude people, that is where the the systemic mistreatment comes from. And now we're doing it to each other. And the thing that I see about it is that they're just anti any other immigrant, and especially for some reason, black immigrants. Now, they, some some of them, those who who do practice this anti-blackness and this anti-immigrant xenophobia, black immigrant xenophobia, um, they'll say that 
you know, um, these people are coming here and taking our jobs. A lot of times, Caribbean people end up taking jobs that most American Africans will not take. When my mother was a, a home attendant, which is what she did when she first got here, she took care of elderly white people. A lot of them were actually racist, and she just had a, a few incidences with racist, rich, white, elderly people where she practiced black self-respect, and she had told me some of those stories coming up that just blew my mind, but she was a recent immigrant, so she was not used to this sort of acute, intimate racism on that level, but she responded the way that she should have as far as practicing black self-respect. Now, she never saw American Africans taking any of those jobs. Everybody who took those jobs were either of African descent or Caribbean, African Caribbean descent. They, today, most so, of them are Latino or Hispanic. Right, and I'll give it Absolutely, and those are jobs that most American Africans will not take. They don't want to do that job. So it's either that or um, they try to get, get some sort of an education and use that to go into the trades, which is what my father did, or they go to school and get a degree and try to get a, a, a decent paying job. They got the same spiel that we get here. Your, your job is to go to school, get a good education, and find a good job working for somebody else. Uh, some of them have the entrepreneurial spirit and have created myriads of businesses all around the country and I know for a fact all through New York City and um, the, the xenophobia is it, it, it doesn't make sense to me because there's too many connections first of all the overwhelming majority of American Africans that came to the mainland United States came from the Caribbean there were very few ships that came directly from West Africa to the coast of the United States so I would say 85 to possibly 90% of them came through the Caribbean islands and then dropped these people off on the mainland. Would it be would it be correct to say that the Caribbeans was like a like a holding holding yes. area? Yes, because that that was the Caribbean islands were were a big part of the seasoning plantation process, and the seasoning plantation process was a process of breaking slaves to make them pliable and, and, and uh, less apt to revolt and um, practice any black self-respect once they were on the field. So these were the places where people were most dehumanized, um, most terrorized and abused. They used to practice butt-breaking, um, which was the act of pretty much raping um, uh, what they would call a recalcitrant Negro, which was basically a black male who was an alpha male and did not accept um, enslavement. So they would basically have him publicly raped in front of his wife, his children, and up to 200-plus slaves would be rounded up to watch this male be um, emasculated in the most horrific ways. And it was in order to instill the fear in them that if you try to act like this one, this will be your fate too. And that was what a big part of what happened in the island so that these, these slaves were considered much more pliable once they got to the mainland. If the slaves still was acting up once they got to the mainland, they would send them back to the island, and usually they would be treated even worse than that. And with that, they, once they knew that the person was broken, then they would send them back to the mainland. So this is documented. There's a great book called All God's Children by a, a man named Fox Butterfield, and it's about uh, Willie Bosket, which is the first child in, this, in the United States that was arrested and tried as an adult and put in adult prison um, in New York City. And they trace his family history back to uh, South Carolina. And they talk about the fact that the overwhelming majority of slaves in South Carolina came from Barbados. And that there was a heavy, to this day, a heavy Bajan cultural expression in that area 
that folds back to the original Bajan slaves that they bought there. So this history is there. For anyone who studies it, the majority of slaves that came here came from the Caribbean. And and they were African Caribbean, so they came from Africa first to the Caribbean, and then they were shipped to the United States on the mainland. So this is the actual history. So if you're castrating yourself from uh, immigrant Caribbeans, you, you could be castrating yourself from your own relatives and not even be aware of it. And um, there's so many contributions Caribbean people made to the Americas. You had over 500 Haitian soldiers that came to this country and fought, I believe it was in Virginia, with the United States to help them during the, um, the, the uh, oh man, it's on my mind right now. Which, uh, which war? It was the war against England. To, to war 1812? Yeah, like they came and they fought and they died here. These were Haitian soldiers. And to this day, America is a big part of the the, um, the continued reparations that Haiti is still paying to France. So these are people who came from another country and actually laid blood on the soil here. And they're still getting disrespected by American citizens as well as the American government. So there's too many connections there for you to, to take that approach. And it doesn't make any sense because we've been here long enough. Immigrants have been here long enough and have experienced the same terrorism that American Africans experienced. Yeah. Um, had this, go ahead. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm getting older now, Ross, <laughs> and yes, sometimes my mind wanders, so excuse me, but let me do this. Okay. Let me open up the uh, conversation to anybody who wants to chime in. Uh, we will be going to a break here shortly. Um, tonight, I'll also be playing some clips that are relevant to the conversation, mainly from Malcolm X, because it's the anniversary of his assassination. And as I put out on Twitter today, you know, the U.S. didn't really see Malcolm X as a threat when he was in the nation of Islam and he was talking about the blue eyed white devil and he was hating on black Christians and stuff. They didn't see that as no threat. Okay. It was after it was after he went to Mecca. Um, I forgot what kind of Muslim he became because you got different sects in Islam like you got in Christianity, but he went, you know, and that was, I, I, was I, I what was it? I believe he was Sunni. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. Yeah, but it it led to an, a spiritual awakening for him in terms of Islam. Then he traveled to Africa, and he's doing this. This is an American descendant of victims of slavery, Malcolm X, who then uh, traveled to Africa to meet up with African leaders and whatnot, and how they can help black Americans in their struggle by applying pressure through the United Nations and what have you. So I, you know, in honor of Malcolm X, who inspired me with his, with his uh, quote about the power of media, he inspired me to create uh, the Black Talk Media Project. So we'll be playing some clips on him about Pan-Africanism. I also got a clip that I'm going to share at the break from Mr. Neely Fuller because, you know, when we really break it down, this is all about justice. Either you practicing justice or you practicing injustice. In my mind, there is no way you can justify a form of racism or more accurately, if we talking about black immigrants, proxy racism. 
there's no way you can justify xenophobia. You have to rely on anecdotal evidence, which isn't evidence at all, okay, and drum up hatred for the whoever your target is, whether it's Nigerians, whether it's uh, Ghanaians, whether it's South uh, Africans. What what you got to drum up hatred for them? I don't see how how that equals justice. I don't see how that is producing justice. So I will play that clip because I ain't heard it in a while. And I think it's a very accurate statement of uh, uh, Mr. Neely Fuller, a counter-racist lecturer, made about practicing justice and, and what have you. But there was something that you said, and my mind started to wander. Please excuse me, because it's been a very, this, these past few months have been very, very stressful for me. And um, um, you had mentioned about your mother's experience when she went to yeah. the UK and she witnessed what I'm gonna call tribalism, okay? Yeah, that's my wife. Yeah, yeah. She, you said it was between African-born immigrants and Caribbean-born immigrants. Yes, that yes. was at, still Afro-descendant, but the animosity yes. and vitriol that and hate that they have for one another—that's the form of tribalism I'm talking about. Because I put a question up on Twitter. I asked the question: If tribalism Again, this goes back to what I said about the kingdom of the home and praying on weaker tribes to uh, enslave them and sell them off to Europeans. If tribalism facilitated the transatlantic slave trade, can tribalism repair the damage done to the descendants of these victims of slavery? That's a logic question. Okay, that's a logic question. Somebody said, well, tribalism can be good, and I ain't talking about no good tribalism. You know, that ain't really tribalism when you're talking about celebrating your own unique culture, which Caribbeans have their unique culture, uh, African Americans have their unique culture, uh, uh, and although, you know, in this day and time, they become blended, you know, especially through hip-hop and music. You know, the, the cultures have been mixed. As well as fashion and what have you. But that's what it reminded me of. I ain't talking about I ain't talking about love for your own unique culture. I'm talking about tribalism. And not just Africans practice tribalism. Before Europeans came to North America, American Indian tribes was fighting each other, enslaving each other, and killing each other and taking each other's lands. You know, so tribalism is a universal thing. So that that's that's my question. And I put that out there. You know, can tribalism, since it facilitated the transatlantic slave trade, does it make any sense that tribalism will heal any victim or repair the damage done to any victim of descendants of slavery? American victims, Jamaican victims. Haiti victims, Trinidadian victims, Tobago, it just goes on and on. My answer to that is you can't use the same methods that, that got you messed up to try and fix it. It's, insan- it's insanity to me for you to think that the same tribalism that put you into enslavement via being a prisoner of war is going to be the liberating factor. That is incredibly um, nonsensical to me. Um, I said this the other day, I think it was on Tango, um, that we're seeing a rift now 
in the global powers that practice white supremacy as far as the different countries they're turning against each other and I said that when they partitioned Africa in the late 1800s they were all on the same page and they they actually put aside their differences to function as a super organism and they partitioned Africa and we know what the rest of the history is now they are so enraptured in making in nationalism that they're making sure that the best interest of each nation is put first. So they're circumventing U.S. sanctions and still doing business with the non-white countries that they need goods and services from. So what you're seeing is the breakup of white supremacy where it's now going to be isolated in pockets and different nations are going to be doing what they do to get their peace, no longer collective. And if you look at that, again, when they were together, in some form or fashion, they successfully partitioned Africa and have been vampiring the continent ever since. And what do they fight most in this country? When does all of the leaders get killed, whether it's Thomas Sankara, um, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, um, you could just run the list, uh, Patrice Lumumba, Stephen Vito, when you start talking about black unification, when you talk about Pan-Africanism. Because if you look at China, no one on, on the planet that's Chinese can be mistreated in any other country and not have China as a nation respond. We saw that with the Huawei arrest in Canada. When they arrested that Chinese, Chinese um, migrant, China um, arrested two Canadians. And, and, and they had to, had to start working on something, diplomatically and politically. That's because China has now become such a power they will not tolerate disrespect of Chinese people anywhere on the planet. Early in American history, Chinese people used to be called chinks, and they'd be made fun of. You're not, not going to do that today. It's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. China's not having it. And Malcolm X said the same thing about the global black diaspora. When Africa's on top, the same thing will happen. You will not be able to disrespect an African without multiple countries, and if they do complete the process of becoming the United States of Africa, the entire continent putting their weight to bear on whoever's trying to disrespect their people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're trying to do here is create a systemic connection amongst our people, which is what Malcolm X was killed for. And for everybody to read the Judas factor, the plot to kill Malcolm X by Carl Evans, it tells you exactly why he was killed. It was because of his Pan-African model and his ability to connect the global non-white community, Asians, Latinos, and the global African community to bring the, to the United, United Nations human rights atrocities against all the European powers for the enslavement and domination of non-white people. And they had to stop that, which meant making sure that he was gone. And him and Martin were on the same page. Yeah, they were getting on the same page. Their lives. Yeah, yeah be, because I just wanted to put that out there. Yeah, because I know you know I would even call it tribalism when the Nation of Islam using Malcolm to attack Black Christians yeah. who have been been the backbone of Black resistance in this country. I mean that they, those were the those were the majority of the people who signed up to put their lives on the line during the Civil War. They are the ones who ran the Underground Railroad. And, you know, I don't wear my my uh, um, spiritual beliefs, which I am a Christian. I'm not ashamed of that. Um, I don't wear it on my sleeve because I have been reading a long time. 
I came into consciousness later than you. I didn't start coming into my consciousness until I started reading Malcolm X's biography while I was sitting over there in Saudi Arabia during the Gulf War helping the white supremacists of America kill non-white people and steal the oil over there. That's when I came into my consciousness. But um, Malcolm X came, I talked earlier about him coming into a second consciousness and Pan-Africanism and him and Malcolm, him and Martin, Dr. King were going to work together. And that's why um, he established the Organization for Afro-American Unity as a non-religious organization to end that tribalism. See, the tribalism don't benefit the divisions among different victims, no matter where they are in the world, benefits only one person. And that's or or benefits only a certain group of people. And to borrow a term from Gus of context of white supremacy, and that's racist man, racist woman, racist child, a.k.a. racist white people. They have been exploiting differences, facilitating differences, and even creating differences. If you look at the destruction of the Black Panther Party, in the tribalism that erupted in that, the F, you had American descendants of slaves working for the FBI who infiltrated the Black Panther Party to destroy it from within. Okay, so I'm going to take a break and open up the phone lines. The telephone number is 712-770-4160. That's 712-770-4160. The extension or the code is 269626. That's 269-26. If you're on the line and you want to com- com- make a comment, um, just hit star six on, on the keypad. If you're using the web phone, you know, it has a dial pad. Hit star six. That will put you in the queue and I will bring you on board. Um, Ross, I'm going to take a break at this time. Um, we're going to hear from Neely Fuller. We're going to hear from Malcolm X. And then we'll come back and we will uh, continue this conversation. You were told. Oh, just to say it's Star 6 1. Are you sure? Star 6 1? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's Star 6 1, yeah. Or That's is that our other conference line? I think it's Star Six. The lady, okay. yeah, the lady will tell them, yeah, it's Star Six because yeah. I tried it earlier. You're thinking about, you know, our, our, um, permanent line that we use, but I didn't want to use it tonight because of security right. reasons. All right. No problem. My bad. Let me mute myself. All right. You're listening to Black Talk Radio News with Scotty Reed as I broadcast from behind the enemy lines of USA Inc. Uh, we are part of the Black Talk Radio Network. It's the world's largest uh, independent black media podcasting and digital radio broadcasting platform in the world. It is managed by Black Talk Media Project, a North Carolina-based nonprofit, and we operate, we're only able to continue our operations by donations from the people. We don't take grant money. We don't even seek grant money. We don't want nothing from the U.S. government. We don't want nothing from these corporations. We don't want nothing from these white foundations. But if we are to survive and maintain our independence and ability to speak truth to power, then it must be supported by you, the listeners. Find out uh, how you can contribute by just giving $24 a year. You can become a podcaster 
on our on our uh, media platform. You will also get access to our social media platform, which is btrcommunity.com, very similar to Facebook. And um, there are some other benefits uh, as well. All right, so we're going to take this break. Um, on the other side, as we continue this discussion uh, with my pan-African uh, brother in the struggle, Ross. white supremacy is a system and what does white supremacy really mean it just doesn't mean somebody being in charge no one should care about who's in charge of anything if the person is not mistreating people white supremacy is about mistreating people based on what based on the color in the skin of those people who are being mistreated that's all it is it's a form of mistreatment there are all kinds of mistreatment in the world, but that's the greatest form of mistreatment. That's why it's supreme, because it's the greatest form of mistreatment. If you want to look for mistreatment of the people anywhere on the planet, most people are being mistreated based on color. That's what it is. Mm. You know, if it's just two people on earth, I mean, one person might mistreat another person just because the person is jealous or envious or something. Yeah. All kinds of ways to mistreat people for all kinds of reasons. But this business about racism is about mistreating people based on color. No, it really isn't. Because, see, people are thinking in terms of, well, they want to brag about being black, which means that they are implying that there's something incorrect about being white, even though these are the creations of the creator. See, and then so everybody gets into this black pride thing or white pride thing, and people immediately start taking sides. It's not about taking sides based on black and white. It's about taking sides based on justice and non-justice. Well, that's what you're really aiming for. Being black doesn't mean anything if you don't believe in justice. And being white doesn't mean anything if you don't believe in justice. Except you mean in, you believe in non-justice. And that doesn't make any difference what shade you are, or how tall you are, or who your cousin was, or anything like that. Or what so-called nationality you have. Like a lot of people say that they take pride in being an Englishman, or take pride in being a Frenchman, or take pride in being Afrocentric. Well, you're not supposed to be proud of any of those things if you don't believe in justice, because these words mean nothing. No nationality means anything. And, and waving a flag if you don't believe in not mistreating people. You've got to believe in not mistreating people, and you've got to believe in helping people that need help the most. Otherwise, you don't even have any business breathing. And we just heard from, um, that was Mr. Neely Fuller. I'm having some technical difficulties here. I want to cue up this clip by Malcolm X. Before I cue this clip up uh, by Malcolm X, I want to say that last clip that I played, uh, Mr. Fuller, where he said, it don't matter about your skin color if you don't believe in not mistreating people, if you don't believe in practicing justice, 
that and then he mentioned it don't matter about your nationality. You want to brag about being, let's say, Jamaican, or you want to brag about being Haitian, or you want to be brag about being an American descendant of slavery, but you don't believe in not mistreating people and practicing justice. And I've yet to understand, and I've had several conversations today, but I've yet to have anybody explain to me why it's necessary to engage in xenophobia, to advocate for for uh, reparations for myself. Why do I need uh, to demonize a Nigerian or a Trinidadian or Jamaican? Why, if I'm my beef is with the people who enslaved my grandfather's people, not with that Jamaican, not with that Trinidadian. It's with the white people who the descendants of the white people who practice slavery against my grandfather, who was A-D-O-S. I had yet to hear a logical explanation of why. And Cobra's been around for a very long time, since 1987, advocating for reparations for African Americans. Not anyone else. Not anyone else. But I have yet to see any members of Cobra get on the air, and I've interviewed some of them. I've had conversations with them, negotiations with them in terms of incorporating new abolitionism into their platform. And when they talk to people, yes, we want reparations, but we need to end slavery first. That comes first and foremost, ending slavery. I don't see how you're going to have a reparations movement asking for a compensation for what was done for your ancestors and what was done to your ancestors is being done to our members of our community today through prison slavery via the 13th Amendment. But here is uh, uh, Malcolm X talking about Pan-Africanism because, Ross, I was told Pan-Africanism is dead. And if Pan-Africanism is dead, it's because the United States and other European nations aided, uh, aided by black victims, confused victims like I was confused when I was in the military about me being a tool of white supremacy but you know I was I was um, told today that um, why it's unreasonable to expect it's unreasonable to expect Americans descendants of slavery to be the sole ones to fight against American imperialism all, aka white supremacy First of all, that never came out my mouth. I never said it was solely on African-Americans. But is it asking too much for African-Americans or anybody because it's open, the U.S. military is open to immigrants, okay? And they actively recruit immigrants and promise them citizenship. If you'll just sign up and let Uncle Sam send you to some white, non-white country, overthrow it, kill the people, and steal the resources, okay? Okay, so that I don't think it's too much to ask of you doing the same thing I did with my children. My daughter, one of my daughters expressed to me, I want to join the U.S. Air Force. Um, I was like, you know what? I know I was in the military, but I don't want you following in my footsteps. Number one, it's a force of evil in this world and spreading white supremacy. Number two, you're a female. And they raping females left and right 
in the U.S. military, and I told her about PFC Lavinia, Lavina Johnson, okay, uh, who was found raped, murdered, and burnt in a tent while she was serving, so-called serving this country in Iraq. How is it too much to ask of African-descended people not to be weapons of white, literally weapons of white supremacy by donning that uniform, picking up that weapon and, and, and going where they tell you to kill white people. That ain't too much to ask. Don't, don't, you know. See, what you want to do is play the victim, but you don't want to acknowledge our role in helping these people victimize other people. But this is Malcolm X on Pan-Africanism. The nature of the situation which is making black people more receptive. The, well, you take uh, the, in the past, say, 15 years, how uh, the nations have emerged, dark nations have emerged in, in Africa. Uh, prior to 10 years ago, most Negroes associated or identified Africa with a savage, jungle-like place. And whenever you mentioned the word African in their mind's eye, they could see the image of a, someone running around with a spear uh, with no language. You'd say, ugga bugga boo or buana or something. And uh, who'd be in a jungle running from lions or chasing lions. But then when, uh, after the war, when the United Nations was set up in New York City, uh, black people began to look at uh, uh, men like Tom Mboya. They began to look at men like uh, Nkrumah. They began to see men like Lumumba. They began to see men like Nasser. They began to see uh, these uh, Belawa and Azikwe who could uh, exchange intellectually with whites on an international level in a political form and hold their own. This made the black people in this country realize that what the Honorable Elijah Muhammad had been teaching all the time actually had substance. And they began to turn it over in their mind and see that what he was saying had more weight to it than what these other Negroes were saying. And they began to identify themselves with the black world and the black struggle more uh, closely than they identified themselves with this so-called white world. You know, Ross, just the other day I heard Yvette Carnell talking about embracing her Americanism. And I was like, wow. And... What Malcolm X is talking about there is the same thing we talking about day. The same, like you said earlier, Ross, this ain't new. This xenophobia, this anti-Africanism is not new. Okay? It, it's just a new generation that's carrying on the foolishness of past generations. And where did those xenophobic African-Americans get this derogatory view of are Africans from? They got it from white people. Ross? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, I just think today, via the advent of social media and media itself, the ease of propagating, this is not the age of information, it's the age of misinformation. Because to find information, you have to know how to do proper research. And research is not just searching on Google or some search engine. You have to really, really do research, pick up books, and actually read them and study them and dissect them and be able to separate the meat from the, 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 meat from the bones when you're reading what you read and read it in the context of having a white supremacist lens. 
because if you're reading a book by a white person, you're find, probably going to find at some point that they might practice racism in the text. So you have to also think about that. And you cross-reference. And there's no legitimate reason for anyone to be, uh, any immigrant to be upset that American Africans are seeking justice for the wrongs of their ancestors and the atrocities committed up till today. And I agree with you, Scotty. Why are you fighting for reparations when the, the terrorism hasn't stopped? Are you going to have a setup where you get reparations in perpetuity because they're just going to continue to kill, kill you in the street? It's us in the street because it's, all of us are getting it. They don't care what island you're from. They don't care what accent you have. As long as you have dark skin or they interpret you as a person of African descent, you could get the bullets all day. And there's more than enough of, of immigrant people on the record of taking the same horrific genocidal treatment that American Africans have taken. And the thing, the thing is that we've all contributed to each other's society. There's, there's a cross-blending here that, and, and the fact that American Africans' origins is in the Caribbean before they got here. So there's so many intimate connections there that it doesn't make sense for xenophobia and um, this sort of anti-immigrant, anti-African uh, narrative to take hold. It's similar to what happened when you had the great migration from the South to the cities of the North, whether you're speaking of Chicago, Detroit, New York, LA, and all the other cities in, in between. Um, and the white people that were already living in the city were told that the Negroes were coming from the South to take their jobs. They didn't care that American Africans were running from the terrorism of the white knights and the Klan and all of that stuff. They're just thinking, y'all are invading to take our jobs and, and, and to basically stultify our cities. And they were lynching black people wholesale in northern cities. It's, it's documented all over New York City. They were hanging black people from light posts, um, setting them ablaze while they were lynching them. They were actually setting them on fire at the same time. There's pictures of it. Um, there was a show called The Nick on HBO where they go into detail of some of these riots and show, show what happened in, in the discussion after the show. They actually go into the records and pull the newspapers. The New York Times from back then showing the origin of this being black people migrating north. So they were given a false narrative, and they took out that animosity and that xenophobia on these black people fleeing terrorism in the South. Well, it and wasn't really saying, xenophobia because, and I do see the caller, I'm going to come to you. Uh, thank you for being patient. It wasn't really xenophobia because these were American-born blacks. It was just simply racism. Right, true. Thanks for that correction, too. But the, the, the truth is that innocent people were being killed simply for trying to have a better life and move away from overt, horrific terrorism. And then you have people from other countries that are fleeing terrorism that was created either by the United States or some other European power in their home country. And what else is a person to do if you're trying to survive and make a living for your family, but migrate to the places that are most stable and most prosperous, where you think you can start over and get have a good life for yourself and your family. And it turns out to be the same perpetrators of the horrors in their country. Those countries are the ones to go to. Mm -hmm. And when we get here, any benefits we get are benefits the people in control of the system give to us. Right, and right, right. Let me make this point before I forget, Ross, because you said it sure. earlier and I forgot. You said that your mother was doing the jobs um, that other other people didn't want to do. Um right. But you really clarified something for me when you said that 
these whites were told in the North that, hey, these Southern blacks is coming up here to take your jobs and whatnot. We're seeing that in this image. I, I had this ADOS person send me a link to a black conservative website that was demonizing immigrants. I did the research in this black conservative platform organization foundation. They do have articles of incorporation. So it's not just a hashtag movement. It's an actual organization, but they had this page demonizing immigrants. They coming to take our jobs and all this and that. And, and so anyway, I did the research and that, that website, that platform, that organization was backed by white conservative think tank in Washington, D.C., which is headed by a racist woman. Okay, and so and so and so, but let's examine the logic of taking our jobs. The only job you have is the jobs you create yourself. Okay, if you're not an entrepreneur, then that job that you claiming is being taken from you, it ain't yours. You ain't in charge of hiring nobody. It ain't your company. You ain't making no decisions. You filing an application to get a job. It's not your job. And the blame, if you worried about some immigrants fleeing instability and violence in their countries because the United States has done to their country, like what they about to do to Venezuela or try to do to Venezuela, it's those people that run those companies that's giving, giving these immigrants those jobs. That's not your job because you didn't create the company. It ain't yours. It's only your job. It's only a job for you once they hire you. So that's just a fallacy. That's not even logical. How is it going to be my job? All right, I'm getting paid. I'm getting. I'm not even getting paid a livable, livable wage. That's not my job. I didn't create that. I'm working for somebody else. It's their job to give. So just a fallacy of blaming uh, uh, people uh, who have no power or the least power in this country for taking something from me. It wasn't, they ain't take nothing from me. You can't take nothing from me that wasn't mine to begin with that belonged to a white person who's playing us against each other. But anyway, I, I, ain't, I didn't mean to cut you off. Before I go to this caller, did you want to finish your thought? Oh, yeah, yeah. I was just saying that, you know, you're blaming immigrants for situations they don't have control over. It's the white people in charge that dictate how, how we become citizens, what we're to do to become citizens, and everything that we're allowed to do is by them. And I'm going to give an example. In Trinidad, the majority of people on the island were slaves at the end when slavery was ended. And the white people did not want the Africans that were newly free to be in charge of their own autonomy from a political standpoint. So they started bringing in indentured servants from China, very few, but there are some, and from India, which is the lion's share of them, to offset the numbers politically. And today in Trinidad, it's basically split in half between Indians and Africans, but Indians are slightly higher than Africans now. And that was to create that rift which still exists to this day between those two groups. And what you're seeing in this situation is the same thing. It's a way of offsetting two different groups of victims of white supremacy against each other that that basically we become the buffer to the argument between the two different black groups becomes the buffer to those two black groups coming together to go against 
the white folks who are in charge of the misery that both groups are suffering from. Yeah, yeah. So we're falling for the same process over and over and over again. It's an expression. It's an expression of the crab in the bucket. Okay. Absolutely. It's a it's just the latest iteration of the crab in a bucket. Instead of focusing on the person who put us all in the bucket, I'm gonna focus my my attention on this other crab who's who's suffering from racism, white supremacy, and being played against my group by the people in charge, which is white people. All right, let me let me get this call. Thank you, caller, for being so patient because you've been hanging in on on for a long time. Uh, let me go to this caller. Um, um, you can give your name if you choose. You can use a pseudonym, but I'm going to 917. Um, your your line is unmuted. Do you have a question or a comment for us? Uh, peace. Greetings. Uh, greetings, callers and listeners. Um, thank you, Scotty, for the platform. Uh, greatly appreciate it, man. Uh, this is Cujo out of NYC. Hey, what's up, Cujo? Uh, not much, man. I just was listening, and um, it's, it's real interesting. I didn't know you guys were going to speak about this because, I, to be frank, I've heard it. I was listening to Yvette, and I was listening to that dude, Antonio, and both times I was just like, this is not making sense. It sounds like there's going to be a divide between the people that are coming that are African but not born here than that are, that are not ancestrally in, enslaved in that aspect, victims, and a divide between the people that are African that are just coming here. And I speak for myself, I'm from the Caribbean as well, and some of what Ross says is, is very accurate as far as the mentality that my family had towards black Americans, so-called black Americans. It was like, we didn't look at them like they were different from us. We just knew that they had been beaten down more than we did in some aspects. And we didn't know how until we got here and started educating ourselves. But my mother was a big on it. She was very informative about the differences and the things that they may see and we don't see because we're not used to that type of subjugation outright for white people because there's so few in some of these islands. Um, but that being said, also, you know, the, the, the truth was, was that we, I got more slack on white people because I had an accent and it psychologically damaged me to the point that I practiced to talk English as good as possible to not be teased when I was younger. So that would actually be one of the, one of the crew, but unbeknownst to me later on, just like Ross said, when reggae started coming in and Calypso and dance hall and then the music between hip hop and reggae started fusing and all these different cultures were meshing in, it was like, wait a minute, that was something that was gonna happen anyway because at the end of the day, this is really about what you spoke about, the Malcolm X clip and everything, Pan-Africanism. So your, your question earlier about dividing each other, is it, is it going to lead to anything We've never seen it lead to anything positive. So I don't see how this, this division with ADOS is going to work. I, I just don't see it. You know, so I, I, I'll mute my line, but thank you for letting me speak, man. Uh, great show, by the way. Thank you. Peace. Thank you, uh, Cool Joe. And uh, anytime you want to chime back in, you know, uh, we touch on something and you have an experience or insight you want to share, just uh, unmute yourself. Okay. All right. So, um, yeah, similar experience that you had, 
had their max. And, and, I mean, excuse me, that you had Ross, his parent instilled in him a level of respect for the struggle that African descended people, um, you know, who born here have gone through and what have you. Um, I didn't hear y'all parents, either of you say your parents taught y'all them, them, them African descendants of slaves is dumb and, and they ain't worth a damn. They lazy and all of that. Because I mean, keep it real, keep it real. Some of the anecdotal evidence that has been used to justify anti-Africanism is you do have elitists in Africa. All of Africa ain't united. All of Africa Everybody and every African in Africa doesn't practice Pan-Africanism. In South Africa, you had some Zulus who were attacking and killing Africans from other countries because they was being xenophobic. And, oh, this is our land, and, and we don't care if you look like us. We're going to kill you, you know, because you taking you taking from me. So, so you know, when you t- point to a Nigerian actress and somebody posted a photo saying this Nigerian actress said something bad about African Americans. Well, guess, guess what? There ain't no kind of evidence to indict every single Nigerian in that nation as being uh, haters of African Americans. That's just one person. That's what, that's what you are again engaging in a form of racism, white supremacy that you learn from racist white supremacists okay that's what they do they deal in stereotypes that's why they highlight uh american descendants of slaves in chicago killing each other you know by the hundreds every year that's why white people that's why they highlight that on their uh evening news or national news because they want to apply that street mentality which was brought about you know, by the conditions created by white supremacists in Chicago to get them, even American descendants of slaves, fighting each other over resources to the point that they'll kill each other. They do that because they want all black people to be seen as savages. So what what sense does it make for us to engage in that same type of behavior Except for you have internalized white supremacy and you taken on, uh, you taken on the role of a proxy racist, Ross. Uh, let me see. Let me get you unmuted, Ross. Ross, you there? All right, <laughs> all right, yeah. Um, thanks to Kujo for chiming in with that because I think it's, it's it's very important. And I remember years ago, this is in the mid to late 80s, I remember Dr. Ben having a lecture about the um, the rift between immigrant African-American and Africans. And he said, I remember he said it and everybody started laughing. He said, well, you know, what started to um, break the ice between the two groups? He said, sex. You know, you find a woman who's attractive. She happens to be from the islands, and you're not thinking of her as this immigrant person. You're just thinking of her as a beautiful sister I want to get with. And ultimately, the cultures melded together, and that is what really broke the ice between the two groups. Because to this day, you go to like let's say Flatbush in Brooklyn, it is a heavily African and Caribbean immigrant area. There are some American Africans there, but the lion's share of the people there are 
Afri Caribbean Africans and African immigrants from the continent. And they have a lot of black businesses out there and all kinds of stuff. And the community really gets along well. There isn't any sort of xenophobia in the area at all. I mean, you do have prim crime and stuff like that because of poverty. But, I mean, as far as the culture of the community, it's a very close-knit community. The people know each other um, in, the, in the respective businesses. They support each other's businesses. And it's just an understanding that goes far beyond the scope of where you come from. That's what really Pan-African means. It just means all African people, no matter where they are, African-descendant people. And just you're not going to get along with everybody. We have, quote-unquote, bad apples in every group. There's always going to be somebody or multiple people that are going to think a certain way and behave a certain way that is negative, non-productive, and, and um, denigrating and self-hating. That's just a, a byproduct of the system of white supremacy and it, it being a global phenomenon. Mm -hmm. But the idea, which is what Minister Malcolm had, was to foster those global connections. And, and, and when people talk about the fact that uh, Pan-Africanism hasn't created any tangibles, Pan-African, everybody who was Pan-African was shot and killed. So there was no time given to Pan-Africanism for it to do what it has intended to do. Right. Only in recent years that we're starting to get these things happening now. Right. And about the building of these five, uh, what they call in Wakanda cities on the continent, that they intend to be built by diasporan Africans and built in the way in which they see fit. And it's different African countries giving this land up. It's, right now it's... Um, it's um, Tanzania and I'm forgetting the other country. Um, they're both giving up land on the border for, for this to start. And hey, hey, Tanzania. Go ahead. Tanzania. Tans yeah. shout, shout out to Brother Pete out there living in Tanzania who is mm -hmm. a American descendant of victims of slavery who joined the Black Panther Party, who was targeted right. by the FBI for neo-slavery and fled to Tanzania which took him in. And yes, he's still he living there. Yes, you're correct. And it's, so I mean when people say Pan-Africanism is dead, it's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard and really Pan-Africanism never had a chance. Marcus Garvey, his entire movement was destroyed from within by the first black agent ever for the FBI. For the FBI yep. Specifically for that purpose. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're, you're literally blaming the victim for the fact that they could not understand the machinations and the depth and danger of the system of white supremacy when you're a black person trying to practice black self-respect and save black lives. So now that we understand these things, some of these leaders are making different tactical moves to circumvent the machinations of white supremacy and bring us together. Let's, so we're in the rudimentary stages of that. Go ahead. Let's what talk about say? killing Pan-Africanism. Now, oh, sure. Gaddafi was ethnically a Berber, which is like an Arab-like people. But yes. he was a Pan-Africanist, because where is Libya but in Africa? And yeah, and all Berbers were not were not light skinned too. You had black Berbers as well. So I just want to make that known to folks. Yeah, not all. Berbers I didn't know that. I I didn't know yeah. that. But thank you. But he's a Pan-African leader who mm -hmm. tried to give, I think it was something like $5 billion to Louis Farrakhan to distribute and help African, I mean African Americans, black Americans, okay? Mm -hmm. The United States blocked that. The Congress 
the government blocked that. I didn't see not a single congressional black member say, hey, wait a minute, why are you doing that? We need that money. You're not doing anything to develop our communities and what have you. Then Gaddafi came up. He, he launched the first communication satellite in Africa so that Africans could have cell phone service and not pay these exorbitant prices to these European telecommunication companies. He did many different projects in Africa and gave them money to, for, for development. Okay, Libya was the most prosperous nation in Africa. And when Africans were seeking, were fleeing from areas like Somalia and other places where Americans and Europeans and NATO is causing disturbances and instability and war. And then you had these people fleeing, trying to get to Europe through Libya. Gaddafi was giving them jobs. Okay, Gaddafi was giving them jobs. Don't tell me pan-Africanism is dead. It's dead to you because you don't practice it. But if it is dead, it's because that we've been murdering. And when I say we, I don't mean me. But um, agents of the American government have been murdering these pan-Africanist uh, leaders and preventing those connections from being made all over the diaspora. One of the last things I, he did or was proposing to do what got him killed was he was proposing that the African nations get on one currency just like Europe has the euro and it'll be backed by the gold dinar and who has more gold and other natural resources than Africa and that is when they that would have meant that all of Africa would have been the economic superpower of the world and they didn't want that so what did they do under a black president with, under the direct direction of Hillary Clinton who many African descendants of victims of slavery uh, American descendants of slavery voted for Hillary Clinton had that man murdered publicly called for him to, we can't wait till y'all capture or kill him that's against US law Okay, and that's why they did that. Okay, they don't want Africa to be strong because then Africa, like Malcolm was saying, will be in a position to help the entire diaspora. And and what's so sad about it? And again, these are hard truths, and some of us just can't deal with it, you know. But I have long come to terms and, and with my role in 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 being a, a soldier for white supremacy by what I did in Iraq, but there was a black woman, American descendant of, of victims of slavery, who was awarded a medal. She was an admiral or some, you know, high officer in the Navy that was launching the planes, um, you know, from that naval ship to bomb Libya back into the Stone Age. And this is and she was given a, a medal. She was given a medal. So when you sit up here and tell me that some immigrants, some African immigrants, some Caribbean immigrants coming here is deliberately trying to harm you, but you don't want to take responsibility of our, as American descendants of victims of slavery, of which I am one, and our long, long, long history of being tools of white supremacy and murdering non-white people and stealing their land and then we don't even get a part in the land 
You know what I'm saying? We don't get the spoils of war other than them butter biscuits, they, they, which I call them now. Anybody in the military, you're just a low-paid mercenary because they don't get paid a lot. Yeah, and then you come back, go back to your native city and get gunned down unarmed in the street by a cop. That's, that, that has happened to quite a few of our people that were in the military. They just get caught up in the random situations that white supremacy creates, and they serve their country, whether it was on the right side of history or the wrong side of history. But then you come back to the place that you were born, and you die as a quote-unquote civilian at the hands of some psychopath. It's real deep. It's deep. You know, I remember my father telling me that I, I was not to join the military, and he said that that was his reasoning. He said, you're not fighting for a country that you can walk the streets of, of New York City and possibly get your brains blown out just for being black. Right. He said, now, if this was a just country, then I would have no problem with you signing up. If they were doing things properly and treating black people like human beings, then no problem with you signing up and, and you know representing for your country and doing what you have to do if they you know ask you to. Do but that. but I'm sure he wasn't talking about as long as they treating us right, it's okay to help them mistreat other people in the world. That's not oh, no, no, no. He means right. that they're on the right side of history, and that you know, and of right. course, like you, you don't have the probability of being killed on the streets of your, you know wherever you grew up. Because of your, the color of your skin, if, there, if this country was just in practicing justice and propagating justice, then it's no problem for you to join the military. Yeah, to and defend this, this yeah, no way. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, I had to have the same conversation with my daughter when she wanted to join the Air Force. Don't I set a bad example? I learned from Malcolm X and, and reading books and seeing my role as a tool of white supremacy that I will not allow you to do that to yourself into and into other people no it's not going to happen and of course she could have joined anyway but out of respect for me she didn't join i do see we have another caller i want to play this malcolm x clip on africanism and organization real quick and then we'll come to the other caller you're listening to black talk radio news with scotty reed on the black talk radio network um we're being joined in conversation about this xenophobia and anti-africanism um, elements within the hashtag movement ADOS. I just don't see how um, why, or why somebody has to hate on vic- other victims of white supremacy in order to advocate for something for themselves. I, 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 I just don't see why there's no justification for it. But anyway, anyway, this is Malcolm X talking about Africanism and organization. Most people, when we say Afro-American, they think only of the Negroes in the United States. But they don't realize that two-thirds of Brazil uh, consists of people of African blood, which means they're also Afro-American because Brazil is in South America. And in all of these, uh, many of these countries in South America and Central America, and even in Canada, uh, they are heavily populated with people whose ancestors came from Africa. So when you total up the number of Afro-Americans, real Afro-Americans, uh, in the Western Hemisphere there are perhaps a hundred million. And if these people ever unite among themselves, not only is it necessary for the Afro-Americans in the United States to be organized, but, uh, but it's also necessary for the Afro-Americans in the Caribbean, or the, the Afro-Cubans, uh, the Afro-Brazilians. It's, it's necessary for all of them to be organized. And then once they are organized in each place, we have to organize among ourselves so that 
the Afro-American in the United States will be uh, working uh, in conjunction in a coordinated program with those who are in Cuba and those in Brazil and those in Venezuela and those throughout the Caribbean and Haiti and in the West Indian Islands. And in this way, we actually get strength. And it's not an accident that there's no organization existing in the Western Hemisphere that's designed toward that end. It would be the, one of the, would be a direct threat to imperialism as it really exists and, and to colonialism as it exists in the West. And one of the things that's going to help to bring this about is, the, is again, is the independence of Africa. And one of the only reasons in the, uh, that we in the West have never always, we have hated our image and our African image. And because Africa has been in the hands of people who have created an image of Africa that's negative and hateful. And uh, it has been hateful to us. We haven't wanted to identify with it. But now that Africa is getting independent and in a position to create its own image and it's a positive image, uh, those of us in the West look at the African image and see how positive it is. We begin to identify with it. We become proud of, of Africa and we, we become proud of our African blood, our African heritage. And this is what is beginning to make the Africans in the Western Hemisphere today develop more race pride. And as, as this race pride develops, then it has a tendency to make us want to unite together and work together. And your Western imperialists and colonialists uh, consider this to be a grave threat more threat than uh, communism or Marxism or socialism or anything else. The Africanism is what they consider to be the real threat. All right. That, that was uh, Malcolm X who was, um, who was regrettably assassinated uh, on this day. Um, I forget the exact, the exact year. And he's exactly right. And that's why I have to reconnect and see what I can do to support in COBRA. And I'm gonna come to you, caller. But let me just uh, inform people: if you want, if you are an American descendant of victims of slavery, because our ancestors were not slaves, they were enslaved. They were human beings who were kidnapped, put through human trafficking, and enslaved. Slave is a dehumanizing term. Stop using it. They were victims. Of slavery, but let me look up some information on Encobra again um, through the uh, New Abolitionist Movement, which I created in 2014 when I launched New Abolitionist Radio. Um, you know, we were lobbying these different groups representing Black people who were talking about reparations or talking about Black struggle. Um, there was another movement; they kind of lost steam now but they were trying to create something like a political organization for for black people and I had and they had come out with a platform and I was like please add to your platform a plank in there that says that America never stopped I mean excuse me the US never stopped practicing slavery they created a new form of slavery through the prisons and the court system and it's codified in the 13th amendment yes we want we want reparations for the labor of our ancestors but y'all just a lot of people just don't know that after 1865 in the civil war and the invention of convict leasing how black people were subjected to black codes put in a prison and then leased out back to plantations to the mining companies and to the railroads we hear a lot about how Chinese immigrants built the railroads. And yes, they contributed. 
Irish people contributed as well. Black people contributed to the building of the railroads, but those black people were convicts from the prison labor camps that had been. That's the continuation of slavery. You you can't advocate for reparations for something that happened to your ancestor and not tack on a few trillion dollars for the continued slavery. But I, again, and you can check our website, and I'm going to leave them up. I'm not going to take them down. But I was just defending ADOS the other day until some of my Pan-African brothers and sisters informed me more about the xenophobia and anti-Africanism espoused by the leaders. Okay, so if you want to fight for reparations, you want an organization that has a charter that has been doing this for decades, then I recommend the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America because they are engaged in what Malcolm X was just talking about. They're not just working to get reparations for from the United States for American blacks, but they're part of an international coalition as well of, of Jamaicans trying to get reparations from the UK, from you know, other Caribbean nations. Because if we all band together, okay, there's power in numbers, like he said, and we can advocate for each other to get reparations from whoever owes each distinct group reparations. But let me give y'all some information. We are the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America. The National Coalition of Blacks for Reparation in America is the premier mass-based coalition of organizations and individuals organized for the sole purpose of attaining reparations for African descendants in the United States. In COBRA's founding meeting, September 26, 1987, was convened for the purpose of broadening the base of support for the long-standing reparations movement. NCOBRA has individual members, national and local organizational members, and organizational affiliates. NCOBRA has chapters, members, affiliates, and supporters throughout the U.S. and in Africa, Europe, Central and South America, and the Caribbean. NCOBRA is directed nationally by a board of directors, not two YouTube famous personalities, but they got a board of directors, in Cobra's campaign and work is organized through nine national commissions, economic development, human resources, legal strategies, legislation, information, and media, membership and organizational development, international affairs, youth and education, and seven standing committees, nomination, executive, executive conference, fund development, uh, ASH, I don't know what that stands for, National Office and National Campaigns, and COBRA holds an annual national membership meeting and conference usually held the fourth weekend in June to conduct the business of the coalition as well as to evaluate and introduce new campaigns and strategies. They do have a donate button. Again, this is a registered nonprofit. These aren't just people you giving money to on the internet. This is an actual coalition that has been doing this work since 1987. If you're looking to join a movement for reparations, 
I suggest joining this movement because they are practicing the very principles that Malcolm X just got through talking about. Let me go to our caller. Um, 917 area code 917 thank you for being patient thank you for joining us tonight on in this conversation uh go ahead with give us your name or pseudonym and uh share with us your comments or questions okay um my name is basil um uh good evening to the brothers uh great program um i am an immigrant i came here when i was 16 years old I didn't come with my parents. I came straight to go to university. And just to give a little bit, I learned about being black in America from black, the so-called black Americans. They, they're the ones that taught me. So some of the tropes, uh, immigrants that is often thrown around by some folks, um, uh, I don't resonate with that at all. But the one thing, there are a couple of things I wanted to point out, listening to your conversation. I remember back in the 80s, um, Dr. Iva Carruthers was doing a lecture at First World. And she started and she said a very important thing. Um, it's best, it's not good to ask the wrong question and have the right answer. It's better to ask the right question and not have the answer. When I look at the, the so-called, what they call this ADOS, they're asking the wrong question and thinking they have the right answer. Um, the xenophobia, because myself and you get Carnell, you've got, I've had back and forth with her, and I just realized that, you know what, this is a waste of time. So I, I observe them uh, passingly every day uh, whenever I see their stuff on, 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 on social media. The other thing you were talking about, justice. And what's interesting, we ha- what um, you're talking about, um, brother, um, oh gosh, now his name slips me um um, Mr. Neely Fuller? Yes, yes, Mr. Neely Fuller. We have a system, Maat, from our ancient medic ancestors. We all, we as, firstly, we as African people, we need Maat, and the rest of the world needs Maat. Because, I mean, just to go over what Maat, Maat is justice, reciprocity, balance, harmony, truth, order, and compassion. I would say we as African people, we need that to heal ourselves, to restore who we are and to work together. Um, the, the other, another thing I find interesting is that language and definitions are really important. And you pointed out something really great just now when you said we our ancestors were enslaved. They were not slaves, right? And I think that is a very important distinction. So that's another thing this DOS, I, it doesn't make any sense. They want to make it seem as though everything started out of the, out of the Ma'afa, as my mentor, Marimba Annie coined it, um, it came out of the Ma'afa. We, 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 we were doing things before the, the Ma'afa, so our answers were enslaved. And the other thing I like, to, there are two more things I want to point out. Um, the Republic of New Africa had a great definition for us. I listened to Malcolm uh, what Malcolm was just talking about just 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 reminded me of what uh, they coined the definition calling us in the Americas New Africans because of the history that we all shared enslavement colonialism and now neocolonialism um, so someone come from Brazil they're New African from Brazil 
you come from where my, my, where I come from, Guyana, you're a new African from Guyana, a new African from Trinidad, new African from the United States. So we always understand we, we're, we're a nation, but we just spread all over the, um, the, the Americas. Right, this is right. Different African nations on, on the continent. Hey, hey, and, Basil, and, and let, then, let, let me interject something about the definition sure. of nation because definitions are important, mm-hmm. and I had looked this up. A nation isn't mm-hmm. just a formal government. Another definition exactly. of nation is people with a shared culture, a shared history, and a shared language. Mm-hmm. Correct. You know what? I once told Eva Carnell that Africans, American Africans, if we want to use that term, are a nation within a nation. I referenced to her, I said, go read a book called Reparations, yes. In the late 80s in college, I came across in a class, we, that's where I got to understand about Encobra in the late 80s. And this book was written by Chokwe Lumumba and Taifa and Tichi and another brother who was part of the New African Republic. And they gave the legal breakdown about reparations, you know. And I would recommend, the book is a hard book to find. It's really expensive now, but it's a really great book to understand. It because one of the interesting, interesting things coming out of that book was Africans coming out of enslavement or even prior to enslavement here in the United States, there were four perspectives. There was those who wanted to repatriate back to Africa, there were those who wanted to repatriate to other parts of the Americas. There were those who wanted to, to carve out a peace here in North America to have their own nation state. And there were those who wanted to be full American citizens, which are all four are all legitimate. One isn't better than the other, right? And they were never given the opportunity to have a plebiscite amongst them to determine which way they wanted to go. Well, well, I, according to what the reparations says, uh, the, the, our legal argument, the 14th Amendment was what was used to colonize African people because coming out of enslavement, they then had the, the same status as the Amistad case. They were not subject to the laws of the United States. There were a, 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 a bunch of people roaming, if you want to say, in the United States that the United States had no legal status over. So what they do? They do the 14th Amendment, so they have legal control over African people here. And that's a history that some, like the Claude Andersons of the world, don't want to deal with. They don't want to deal with the Carnells of the world. They don't want to deal with that. Deal with that, because it will, it will, their, their whole, their whole standing would be like a house of cards would fall, would fall apart. But the last thing I wanted to say about Pan-Africanism, which uh, a lot of people don't seem to realize Pan-Africanism could never die because all of us Africans here in the Americas are the walking, living embodiment of Pan-Africanism. We are an amalgamation of many African tribes. That's why Pan-Africanism came out of us. We're the ones that influenced those folks on the continent about Pan-Africanism because we are the embodiment of that. It was Pan-Africanism that caused our ancestors to rebel and resist enslavement and why we are still here today. So when anyone says Pan-Africanism is dead, they're ahistorical and don't even understand our history in America. I thank you, brothers. Great show, and have a great night. Thank you. Thank you. You uh, educated me 
on on some things, especially pertaining to the Fourteenth Amendment, because I've had other arguments, I've heard other arguments that weren't really explaining it to me of how that harmed uh, African descendant people coming out of enslavement. Uh, how they, you know, they like you said, you had four groups. Um, you know, some they wanted to repatriate back to Africa, and they did. That's what, what Liberia represents today. Um, you know, uh, others, you know, wanted to go to South America or Central America. Um, you know, Malcolm talked about the Afro-descendant people there, and what. But the the key thing, though, is the plebiscite. You know, you didn't give you didn't give them an option to or, or the land. You know, to to create their own nation. In other words, you brought them under the subjugation of the U.S. government, okay? Um, taxation without representation. So thank you. Thank you uh, for enlightening me on that. Also, you mentioned the uh, Republic of New Africa. That's another group that I contacted and and got them um, you know, to connect with the new abolitionist movement and recognizing that Slavery ain't never been abolished. If you can read English and got an eighth grade comprehension level and you read the 13th Amendment, which says involuntary servitude and slavery shall be abolished except as punishment for crime whereof a person has been duly convicted, then how can you claim to abolish something while you carving out an exception? You didn't abolish it. You created a new form of slavery called neo-slavery to be practiced against Afro-descendant people through the court system and the prisons. And they were receptive to that. And, you know, they also participated. Um, my organization, Black Talk Media Project, we helped fund um, the march it's, it was called the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March in Washington, D.C. two years ago. And the Republic of New Africa uh, had representatives there who were among the speakers that spoke on that day. But you, you said it best, man. Pan-Africanism can never die because we are the embodiment of that pan-Africanism because I was, you know, pushing back against that by saying, wait a minute, here's my Trinidadian brother who has supported the work of my organization through financial donations, through participation in the media that we're producing. I'm talking about Ross. Then I have a volunteer uh, who's in the UK who, who, who done some stat work for us, you know, just some technical stuff behind the scene, didn't even want to be paid. She's in the UK, never met her face-to-face, only talked to her through Skype and whatever, but she believed so strongly in the mission of the Black Talk Media Project, she was like, let me volunteer my skin. That's pan-Africanism. As I told somebody else today, I've recently, um, the new abolitionist movement and I can't go because of my health right now, um, my physical limitations. But we were invited to Ghana because slavery, legalized slavery through the prisons are being practiced in Africa. Okay? And they heard us over the internet via Black Talk Radio Network and they were saying, dang, that's what's happening here. And we want you brothers to come here 
to help us start a movement, a new abolitionist movement against this legalized slavery that's being practiced in Ghana, okay? And then I was recently contacted by a missionary on the behalf of a Nigerian Christian pastor who they found my work and want me to come there to help them set up their own independent digital radio station. Pan-Africanism is not dead. Ross, any comments on what we heard from our guests? Yes, when we talked earlier, I almost verbatim said exactly what he said, that we are an amalgamated African people. You had groups that were killing each other before they were kidnapped and enslaved, and these people were forced to create something new with each other. And like he said, we are the living DNA embodiment of Pan-Africanism. The one thing I did want to also say is Pan-Africanism is a very, very ancient concept. It's not new. And Dr. Chancellor Williams in his book, The Destruction of Black Civilization, outlines the origin of the Pan-African mindset continentally um, going back many thousands of years, and it was based on something called lineage ties. In other words, our ancestors knew that they came from a common source, and that was the bargaining chip that was used between groups to mitigate conflict. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, this was something that was done continent wide. He did studies with um, well over 100 plus tribes all over the continent to get this information. And we had nonviolent conflict resolution, which is something that, if anyone has ever seen the movie Shaka Zulu, when the Brits first get to South Africa, and um, I believe it's Dingusweo's army is having another battle with another group and they never actually come to blows. They stand apart and they do like these scary war dances with their um, spears. And one of the Brits actually say, they call this warfare, they're not even like killing each other. And they like kind of laugh at what they call warfare. But that was because we had learned that um, killing made no sense. So, and also we knew that our origins, we had, we had um, the same origin. So ultimately knowing that pretty much we were brothers far removed depending on where we were just placed on the continent, what they did was they created these different war dances and he talked about the fact that the two groups would try to scare each other in the war and they would even sit next to each other when they would take breaks from combat and kid and joke with each other before mm -hmm. going back to practice this nonviolent combat. But when you study the animal kingdom, you see the same thing is true. Um, animals will wrestle each other dominant and one animal will give way to the stronger animal to avoid them killing each other. Sometimes they do kill each other, but the ultimate goal is for them to, to propagate their genes. Mm -hmm. So it, makes, it doesn't make sense for them to go about killing each other all the time. And you that's what we were doing back then before our, our contact with outsiders facilitated. It, it started before them, but it facilitated wholesale killing amongst our people in the country. You know, another example of Pan-Africanism that we talked about earlier today off air was the, I, I don't know if I want to call it a, the Charleston Rebellion because, you know, uh, somebody snitched and there was a slaughter of, you know, the free black people. They burnt down that church, Mother Emanuel Church, where Dylan Roof, the white supremacist, went up in there. And, well, that church was at the center of a planned rebellion between Denmark Vesey, who had formerly been enslaved but got his freedom and was a part of that church that was run by free black people. And he was plotting with an enslaved African by the name of Gullah Jack, okay? 
And what they were going to do was stage a rebellion, hijack a ship in the port of Charleston, and sail off to Haiti. That was a demonstration of Pan-Africanism because they weren't from the same tribe. And even at that time, Denmark Vesey had the status of being free as much as you could be free under white supremacy at that time. And and Gullah Jack was enslaved. So that was an embodiment of Pan-Africanism at that time that we talked about earlier. Well, go ahead, Ross. I was just going to say, um, just to finish my previous thought, it makes sense that the people that would resurrect an ancient ideal of brotherhood across the continent would, would be the victims of enslavement in the Western Hemisphere because of our experiences and the fact that we were forced amalgamated with one another in order to come together to get some semblance of black self-respect and, and complete dominance in the Western Hemisphere of uh, colonialist white supremacists. So that's the beauty of everything. When you talk about the resurrection of chemitology, that started in, with Western Hemispheric African people. And that knowledge of what Kemet had to offer then spread to other parts of the continent. They forgot who they were. That's how brutalized they were in their own land. So we got to stop blaming the victim and understand we have a common enemy. We have a common history and a common origin and that we can do things to help each other seek justice against the people who have enslaved us directly on the specific lands we come from. And that's not from practicing xenophobia and self-hatred. It's about amalgamating our force together to have a unified front like they did in order to put us in the position we're in right now. The last thing I want to talk about, Ross, and I was talking uh, to to my sister that's in the U.K., um, earlier today and you know she I have invited her to be a guest on the program but you know she has been so um, you know stressed out from her job and what have you as she's on some kind of special assignment um, but she's going to come on at a later date but we talked for about an hour hour today uh, using Skype and we were talking about the political strategy how this isn't it makes no sense and I told her you know why I'm calling it a hashtag movement? Because that's all it is right now. I said they haven't in, uh, any. They're not like in Cobra. They haven't organized and started a, a, a organization, okay? And, and what they're just YouTube personalities who created a hashtag, and now you got a, a and not all of them. So let me make that clear. But a lot of them have been attacking me, and I'm calling you created army of Twitter Twitter bullies. Is what you did. Okay, that that that's nothing going to come of that. That's that's like a fad. Fads come and go. You're not building anything sustainable, not based on xenophobia, because, look, reparations has to come through politics, the people activity area of politics. You have to lobby Congress. They have to set aside the funds to pay reparations. I think in Cobra uh, estimates that I think it's twenty two trillion um, that they want, it'll come out to $250,000 for every um, African um, descendant of slavery um, victims of the U.S. government. Um, and so I'm saying now, since you got to go through politics to get reparations from the U.S. government, you can only, there's one or two ways that you can, uh, one or two avenues that you're going to have to go through. That's the Republican Party. And that's the Democratic Party. We can go ahead and scratch the Republican Party off right now, okay? Because the Republican Party is not 
ever been and never will be for reparations, okay? So that leaves you with the Democratic Party. And again, you have about 22, I think it's 22, I don't know if all of them still alive, but it, it's, a, it's a significant number of black representatives in Congress, part of the Congressional Black Caucus, who have co-signed and sponsored, um, you know, H.R. 40. I think it's H.R. 40. Um, I, yeah, uh, let me see if this is on in Cobras. Well, what, whatever the name of that bill is, that just languages yeah, in committee all the time. I said, so that, that means you need them to do that, right? Well, when it comes to politics, you have to be very codified. Do you think that any of them black rep- representatives right now, the way the Democratic Party is pushing back against xenophobia, not because they really care about those immigrants, because if they cared about them, they wouldn't be voting to bomb their countries or overthrow their countries, creating these refugees in the first place, okay? But you're going to have to go through the Democratic Party. Do you think that those elected representatives are going to allow themselves to be connected to a xenophobic a movement which then can be used against them as political ammunition? No, they're not. So what are you going to do? What 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 what's your end goal here? That's why it's important when Neely Fuller talks about codification. Mr. Fuller said something to me, not said it to me, but said it to us all. It made a lot of sense. He said, he ain't talking about when we speaking among ourselves or on Black Talk Radio Network on whatever program we're talking about racism or white supremacy, where they're both the same thing. Um, because Neely Fuller says racism is white supremacy. He doesn't say racism, white supremacy. That's like, uh, what's the proper name for it? That's like redundant. Okay. Racism is white supremacy. Okay. But He said, when you go to a public town hall to talk to an elected official about racism, we know the R word is a trigger word for racist. Soon as you accuse them of practicing racism and what have you, it's going to be immediate pushback against that. Oh, dude. And they're going to start talking about you playing the race card, and they're going to start talking about reverse racism and all that stuff. So he said, and, and, and instead of letting it get to the point to where then is is unconstructive and two groups are in this public town hall accusing each other of practicing racism or reverse racism or playing the race card and all that, can you describe racism without using the word racism? That means you got to expand your vocabulary. That that you can talk about the mistreatment without using racism. He's talking about codification. Okay? And this is especially useful on the job. You don't, you, and that's why he talks about asking questions. You just don't come out outright and make accusations without documentation. You gotta have the documentation, okay? If you got a documentation, then that's a different story. When you can point to the data and accuse somebody of racism where it's in the data. It's not me calling you a racist. The data's calling you a racist. But he talks about if you're being mistreated on the job, don't just come out and say, you mistreating me because of racism. No, you be more codified. You go to the employee handbook and you say, hey, 
This employee handbook says that I work third shift and I'm supposed to get an extra. This actually happened to me. I'm supposed to get a dollar extra an hour for working third shift. Am I not getting it because I'm black? I don't have to say that. All I have to say is the employee handbook says I work third shift. I'm on third shift. Where's my extra dollar per hour? You know what I'm saying? Without using the R word. I know it's racism. They know it's racism. But as soon as I call them a racist, then it's going to be a bunch of deflection. You playing a race card. How dare you? And blah, 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 blah. So I really appreciate that. Again, you know, when there's direct evidence of racism, call it racism. But when you don't have that direct evidence, can you explain the mistreatment that you are suffering without using the R word in a town hall? That's codification. Does that make any sense to you, Ross? Absolutely. Um, it, 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 it's a, something else that you said that I've actually taught some coworkers, some black female coworkers on the job. You never directly accuse a white person of racism. Because at that point, the conversation stops, and then the onus is on you to prove that they're racist. What you do is, like you said, you deal with the issue. You might use the Constitution or you use the company handbook. And if they are practicing racism, you don't say that they're racist. You might say, I suspect that you may be practicing racism on me. And you can use examples. Racists do X, Y, Z and say this and such and such and you did X, Y, Z and said such and such and such, which coincides with something that a racist would say. So I suspect that you're practicing. Or if another powerful white person chooses to also call that other white person a racist, then you have someone who's backing you up, who has the power to make something happen. And that's very rare that a, one white person will do that to another in defense of a, of a non-white person. So the idea is that you never use the R word directly. You deal with the actual circumstance and you describe it in a way as such that it's properly interpreted by the wordplay you're using without being directly accusatory. Because then at that point you're playing lawyer and you're going to be the one that has to prove now why this person is a racist. Now, also, and if you don't have that evidence, you're messing yourself up. Go ahead. Yeah, and, and that's the importance of documentation and keeping a journal on the job. But, um, um, Earlier today, I talked about if you are relying on these white platforms, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, as your sole base of operations, okay, then you're setting yourself up for white people to kick you off at any time because that's their platform. And you, you let's let's just say let's just say some powerful uh, immigrant. That is in Congress. Let, let's say, what's her name uh, up there in Minnesota? The woman from Somalia that's a congresswoman um, now? Oh, Ilan Omar. Yeah, Ilana uh, Omar. All right. Or let's say it's a Hispanic congressman. and they Or some of their constituents say, hey, I'm on YouTube and I was listening to this channel and they're demonizing and saying derogatory things about immigrants, which is a protected class under federal law uh, in the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which says you cannot discriminate against people by national origin. Also, it, it, xenophobia is a form of racism. And, and so it, these people have their terms of service with these platforms. 
by you being uncodified, you're setting yourself up to lose your base of operations. Then what you going to do? Then what you going to do? Number one, your xenophobia is incorrect. It's unjust. It's not practicing justice. And it's just flat out wrong. And it's it's not rooted in any kind of, it's not pointing towards any kind of solution. Okay? But your whole base of operation is on white people's websites and stuff. You're not even practicing black self-respect by having enough sense to create your own platform. Okay? So, uh, again, I just don't know how long this is going to last because you are so uncodified. You, 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 you act like for some educated people with college degrees, you act like you was born yesterday and you don't know how this, how this works. No politician is going to pick up your platform or, or push your agenda and they find out and it's pointed out to them, these are xenophobic people. Because then they said they give their opponents and future racists uh, ammunition against them. Does that make sense, Ross? Completely does. And then they're not going to align themselves with anything that can be overtly traced to xenophobia or racism. It's just not going to happen. And I think that the approach is just, it's, it's going to bear itself out as time progresses. But it's just a completely incorrect approach and the best way to do things is to work holistically with people and if there's something that immigrants don't know then why not educate them once they understand okay well it's, it's, it's maybe there's something that we can do to help facilitate your struggle mm-hmm. but when you do all this separatist nonsense you're really setting yourself up because think about this when the economy collapses a lot of people in America are going to be seeking to flee America and there's a lot of people in other countries that actually have a lot of admiration and respect for American Africans. So if you start mistreating and abusing these people, these are the same people that might close their doors when you want or need to come to, to them for assistance. Right, right. That doesn't make sense. Right. This is, this is something that, that is just, it's like cutting your nose to spice your face. And then the people that you're... Um, you show the most vitriol for are the people who look like you. Wow, how cliche in a system of white supremacy. Yeah. Uh, it's just sad. So we just have work to do to, to really overcome right. Right. this kind of um, stupidity. Um, yeah, that's it. All right. <laughs> well, Ross, we've been on for two and a half hours. I didn't plan to go this long, but hey, you know, I hope it was yeah, constructive. Yeah. Um, if you think it was constructive, please share it with other people. Uh, Pan-Africanism is not dead. There is strength in numbers. And there is an organization called NCOBRA that's been about that work. And it's an international organization that is more credible than a hashtag movement. And with that, I'm going to close it out with Malcolm X, uh, who uh, a portion of his speech at the uh, Oxford University um, debates. And it's mainly talking about practicing justice and uniting with people who want to practice justice to overthrow this evil system, white supremacy that's subjecting us all to mistreatment. I want to thank our callers and again, thank you Ross. Um, I'm not sure when I'll be back on with a, a live broadcast, but I'm trying to produce more podcasts. Again, if you're interested in joining our Black Media Collective, you can join us, become a podcaster, audio podcast. You can upload video podcasts. 
Um, I have tutorials. The equipment doesn't cost that much uh, to produce a professional podcast, and you can even use it with video. I have those tutorials on blacktalkradionetwork.com. If you need one-on-one help, I'm here for that. I'll help you over, you know, we got a conference line where we can see each other's screens, and I can make sure, you know, uh, identify any mistakes you might be making in your settings or whatnot. But if you want to become an independent black media producer, hey, maybe you just want to write a blog. Join with us at Black Talk Radio Network for just $24 a year. Can you go to Blog Talk Radio and pay $24 a year and upload unlimited podcasts? No, you can't. You can't go to uh, SoundCloud. I think there's like $10, $20 a month to upload podcasts and distribute podcasts. You can't do it. We're just $24 a year. I've been, uh, we've been around for 11 years now. November will mark our 12th year. We've only been here through the grace of God and the donations from a very small group of people, less than three, 300, but we've been making it work. But we are in danger of shutting down and we want to try to obtain 1,000 subscribers at $24 a year. Again, you'll have access to Black Talk Radio Network platform as a publisher, you know, video, audio, writing, or and you'll also get access to our social media community that black people told me we needed so I built it called btrcommunity.com that's how you can help us sustain our independent black media efforts where we are free to speak truth to power without being afraid of somebody suspending us and kicking us off of a platform that we did not build and do not own alright that said Recognize the fact we live behind the enemy lines of USA Inc. They still practicing slavery uh, by law and we need to end it. And we need to do it as soon as possible, as Malcolm would say, by any means necessary. The most famous debating societies in the world. And on his feet at this moment, Malcolm X, one of the leaders of the black Muslims in America. Let's, for a moment, just hear a little of what he's saying. You make my point. <laughs> that as long as a white man does it, it's all right. A black man is supposed to have no feelings. <laughs> but when a black man strikes back, he's an extremist. He's supposed to sit passively and have no feelings, be nonviolent and love his enemy, no matter what kind of attack, be it verbal or otherwise, he's supposed to take it. But if he stands up and in any way tries to defend himself, <laughs> then he's an extremist. <laughs> no, I think that the, the day that the black man takes an uncompromising step and realizes that he's within his rights when his own freedom is being jeopardized to use any means necessary to bring about his freedom or put a halt to that injustice, I don't think he'll be by himself. I live in America where there are only 22 million blacks against probably 160 million whites. One of the reasons that I'm in no way reluctant or hesitant to do whatever is necessary to see that black people do something to protect themselves, I honestly believe that the day that they do, 
many whites will have more respect for them and that there will be more whites on their side than are now on their side with these little wishy-washy love thy, love thy enemy uh, approach that they've been using up to now. And if I'm wrong, then you are racialist. <laughs> Anytime you live in a society supposedly based upon law, and it doesn't enforce its own law because the color of a man's skin happens to be wrong, then I say those people are justified to resort to any means necessary to bring about justice where the government can't give them justice. I read once, passingly, about a man named Shakespeare. I only read about him passingly, but I remember one thing he wrote that kind of moved me. Uh, he put it in the mouth of Hamlet, I think it was, who said, to be or not to he was in doubt about something. <laughs> Whether it was nobler in the mind of man to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, moderation, or to take up arms against the sea of troubles and by opposing, end them. And I go for that. If you take up arms, you'll end it. But if you sit around and wait for the one who's, who's in power to make up his mind that he should end it, you'll be waiting a long time. And in my opinion, the young generation of whites, blacks, brown, whatever else there is, you're living at a time of extremism, a time of revolution, a time when there's got to be a change. People in power have misused it, and now there has to be a change, and a better world has to be built, and the only way it's going to be built with it, with it, it, with, is with extreme methods. And I, for one, will join in with anyone, don't care what color you are, as long as you want to change this miserable